0: Welcome to This Girl Camp, where we chat to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon, and today I'm talking to Paula Sheridan, owner of Unwrapping Potential. Having spent 25 years of her career with GSK, in 2018, Paula decided to take a leap into self-employment and set herself up as a business coach, helping women in the industry recognise their worth. Having been on her own journey, finding her confidence and the value she offered, Paula became a passionate advocate for empowering women at work. She has loads of insights of her learnings, working directly with these women to share with us. So let's get going. Hi, Paula. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for the invitation. I'm really glad to have you. So, Paula, would you mind, please, telling us a little bit about yourself and your story from your career so far?
1: Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm Paula Sheridan, and my career in pharma, I, yeah, I started in GSK. It wasn't even GSK then. Started in Glaxo Labs way back in 1993. And I'm one of the few people who stayed with the same company all the way through. So I spent 25 years in what subsequently became GSK and I guess I didn't it's not that I set out going oh I'm going to forge a career in this one company it was more that every time I got a bit bored another job would come up and I'd go oh that looks good I'll go and do that and so <laughs> yeah it just there were opportunities and they were interesting opportunities so that's what I did I stayed with GSK for 25 years but then redundancy eventually came along and so now I work with women who are Feeling overlooked and pissed off that less experienced people keep getting promoted over them. And I helped them how to learn to recognize their value and more crucially, how to communicate it to other people so that other people recognize their value.
0: Fabulous. So how did you get into that then? What led you down that path?
1: So GSK at the time had had an internal coaching program where anyone could train up to be a coach, but also anyone could have access to a coach, which was a fabulous program. And I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed some of the other stuff around it that, that I did, which was around being on the SteerCo for the UK Women's Network and organizing those kinds of conferences and developmental events, that kind of thing. And a lot of, there was quite a common theme that kept coming out in terms of this frustration of not being noticed, women feeling that they're not being noticed and it wasn't, yeah, what do I have to do to be noticed? And so I guess that's where I really went to in in terms of yeah, this stuff matters.
0: So go back for me a little further, if you would, Paula. Tell me a little bit about how you came to work in the farmer industry in the first place and
1: paint, paint the full picture for me. I, yeah, I did medical science at university and then came out of university thinking I have no idea what I'm going to do. I knew that I didn't want to follow I oh, the milk round of management consultancy, accountancy, all of that kind of thing, which a whole load of my university mates were doing. It just, it didn't really grab me. Yeah. And then my dad was a pharmacist and he says, these drug reps seem to have quite a nice life. And so I went out with one for the day and I thought, oh no, this is a bit more interesting. This is going out and about. This is talking to people. This is, you can, this is something that you can get behind and you can believe in, in terms of you're selling medicines, hopefully that you know, make a difference. So I applied, uh, started a role, and, and I guess what I also didn't want at that point, I didn't want to live in London. An awful lot of the graduate jobs were in London, and I wanted to stay. I grew up in East Anglia, and I wanted to stay in East Anglia. So my first job was actually in Norfolk. And then I stayed doing sales for about four or five years, which is probably too, yeah, I should have moved on earlier thinking about it, but life and the situation I was in at the time, and I had got married and that kind of kept me where, you know, that necessitated living in the same place as my husband. But then we split up and got a divorce and the world was my oyster again. And I looked around and thought, what do I actually want to do? What do I want to do? And I had a manager at the time who did support me to go and spend a couple of days in the office and. Just meet, but he set up a whole load of networking meetings for me so that I could meet people from different departments and understand what each department did. And what was it actually like to work there? That kind of thing, which I think was a fabulous thing for him to have done. And so I got to know a bit more about what certain departments did. And then a job came up and it was billed at the time as information analysis. And bear in mind, I don't think I had ever opened Excel in my life at that point. This was 1998. I had no reason to, and I never had. But what this job required you to do was to access data that was held in a really ancient database, and that really ancient database didn't have a front end on it. So you had to learn to program in a really ancient language that nobody knew anymore. So a whole load of the testing for the job was an aptitude test for programming. And turns out I have an aptitude for programming and quite a high aptitude for programming. And so, despite not having actually the skills for the job at the time, I got the job based on a really high aptitude and the fact that experience of the company, I knew the drugs and what they were about, the context in which to place them. I knew how the sales system worked, all of that kind of stuff. And oh my God, I loved that job. I absolutely loved that job. It was brilliant. Because I was, I'm I'm nosy as anything. And in that job, you could answer all the questions you really wanted to know. Like, what? So what do people use? What do people prescribe before they prescribe our drug? And, And get the actual data on what are they deciding between, basically? What is triggering the use of our medicines? What areas are growing faster or not faster? And I loved the challenge of learning the programming, learning Excel, learning to build big spreadsheets. I know this makes me a bit weird to many people. I really enjoy all of that sort of thing, working out, what is the question we want to answer and how can we answer it? And I really enjoyed that job. It was brilliant. And then through that job, I wound up working with the channel management team, the dispensing doctors team in particular, because they needed a lot of data and a lot of analysis and then just moved sideways into looking after that and so wound up in commercial operations and again, really enjoyed it. It was a great team. We were all very supportive of one another, which is something else I really enjoyed and really valued. And then the merger came along, the merger with Smith Beecham. And I stayed with that role to, to get through to the other side as the merger. And yeah, when we were speaking earlier and we talked about pivotal moments, there was a really pivotal moment around that time where the, the head of the department because I'd been offered a different job out of the department at the merger, and the head of the department said he would back me for any role in a year's time. If eh. please, will you just get us stay and get us through the merger? Because you're the only one who knows how this area works, kind of thing. And he did, and he was true oh, to his word. Yeah. And so after that, I was he then put me forward for a role in Europe, working across Central and Eastern Europe initially. Uh, in commercial analysis, so that brought in market research as well as all of the information analysis that I loved. And I stayed in that kind of area in Europe and then opened up to the whole of Europe for about five years because I really enjoyed it. I loved market research. I loved all of the forecasts, working out what's the world going to look like in 20 years time, that sort of forecasting. And I built a nice little niche for myself in development and in late stage development. So pre-launch stuff, which was fun and exciting and optimistic. It was the kind of stuff where you're looking at the blue sky and reality hasn't quite hit yet. And it was really, really (laughs) optimistic and I really (laughs) enjoyed it. But I'm sure we'll touch on this later. I realised actually looking at it, I sailed under the radar quite a lot in that area because I became the expert in the bits and pieces that I was doing and the products that I was working on. Because they weren't marketed yet, so not a lot of other people had the level of information that I did, which meant that no one really knew what I was doing a lot of the time, Mm. which in some ways was great because I had a lot of freedom, but in other ways it's not so great because no one knew what I was doing. Yeah. From there, I threw a variety of roles and wound up in rare diseases for probably the last 10 years or so with GSK. And yeah, I liked rare diseases a lot as well because you can... It's very easy to draw a line from the action that you take on one day and the impact on a patient. When you've only got a thousand patients on your medicine around the world, it really matters what decision you make about how much stock to make, where you're going to send that stock, all of that kind of stuff. It makes a difference. And I found it easier to really get behind that and get really motivated about that than something where there was millions of patients and it was... It felt more anonymous. So, yeah, and it was there as well, I think, that the theme of not being very good at communicating what I was doing and not saying it out loud meant that it wasn't very obvious because when you're in various roles, when you start out as a graduate, you get loads of supervision in whatever job Mm -hmm. you're doing because, frankly, you don't know what you're doing. And so you (laughs) need supervision. But as you get more experienced and move up a few levels, there is very little supervision because it's assumed you know what you're doing. And jobs become much less about, wow, delivering really big win. And jobs actually become very much about making sure things don't go wrong in terms of what you're actually delivering. So you become this expert in doing what you do and knowing how to do it. And no one knows about all the problems you've solved about that you noticed that regulatory wasn't copied on that really crucial email, they haven't given their feedback. And if we miss this deadline, it's going to cost us half a million pounds. Yeah, I definitely fell into it in terms of, yes, not realizing how to articulate the value I think that I was offering.
0: I think that's one of your... Main motivators is looking for the bigger picture, looking at the analysis, looking at, like you say, that blue sky thinking. Do you think that's what led you to do this work with coaching women? Did you see the opportunity and a greater need? Oh, that's
1: interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that, that really is the line, isn't it? it? It was always, yeah, it's something that to care about. So, yeah, being able to see, yeah, the straight line between what you do and an outcome is incredibly motivating. And that outcome making a difference is really important. And, yeah, I'm really lucky, aren't I, in that I've ha- I work with people now where, yeah, you can, I can see and they can see the difference that it makes. But also yeah. I've worked in quite a few roles where I get to see the difference, where keeping a rare disease medicine in stock against all the odds we managed to do it kind of thing uh, that that is incredibly motivating and i suppose that probably is it is that that is what motivates me solving problems i like finding finding the answer to something and working out what's the path to that answer yeah. that's really interesting to me
0: when you're working with women in this way do you tend to where does it do they come to you typically in a state of crisis, or is it just they think, "Oh, I've been going along at a certain level, and I'm ready for something more"? I'm interested in terms of how it, how the relationship with them starts and what and how they present to
1: you. To say in crisis, I think would be too strong a word. They may come at a decision point, so trying to make a decision about what where do they want to go. What do they do next? It may be, there's always, there's a flurry that happens at the beginning of the year. So after appraisals. Yeah. There's always a bit of a flurry with people who are thinking, why did I get that appraisal rating when my teammate who did less than I did and delivered less than I did to better rating? And that usually people go, this is not, what the hell do I do to get out of this? Is usually about. Understanding how to become more visible and how to make what they do and the value that they contribute more visible. And quite often it is about recognizing what that value is as well.
0: You talked to me when we first spoke, you talked to me about the unconscious competence and, yeah. and you took me through quite a nice path. So remind me of that again. That's, I find that really interesting.
1: We start out. Thinking that, yeah, we are, we, we know everything and we're completely unaware of what it is we don't know and what it is that we need to know. And that kind of, we're unconsciously incompetent. And then as time goes on, we realize just how big the gap is between what we don't know and what we could know. And so now at least we become consciously incompetent, <laughs> we can start to bridge that gap. Consciously incompetent is a good place to be. And then you move from there and notice that you're learning and you notice that you're improving and you notice you're getting better and you become consciously competent. You are aware of what you're able to do. But after a while, you forget that because it's no longer, it's no longer a challenge to do these things. So whether it's, I don't know, organizing and managing project teams, for example, the first time you're a project manager, you have to really think about it all and you are aware of what you're doing. But after a while, you do it for long enough. It's second nature. So you become unconsciously competent unless you find some way. To keep reminding yourself of what it is that you're doing and you're achieving.
0: See, that must be then very commonly linked to these feelings of imposter syndrome that yeah. people feel. If, you are, if things start to become so natural to you, And it isn't, and you're not necessarily the sort of person that's very good at reminding yourself of the skills you have, and then you're put into a new environment. Is that basically part of over to imposter syndrome?
1: Yes, imposter, like the imposter phenomenon, is often related to feeling like you don't belong in a particular environment or a particular group for whatever reason. So it may be because you're the only woman in an all male group, so you are noticeably different. It might be related to race. It might be related to know, neurodiversity or neurodivergence and you do that you are different from everybody else. So you feel like you're going to get found out. And part of that, yes, is the self-esteem or lack of self-esteem in terms of thinking, oh, am I up to this? If you're not really aware of all your skills and all of your value, then, yeah, that just piles on top of the, I don't feel like I belong here. Or even worse, I don't think I will belong there, so I'm not going to put myself in that situation. So, yeah, it's they are all interlinked. So
0: talk to me about your own experiences then. Did you have... the you- We briefly touched on pivotal moments before and you'll know that within this show we tend to talk a lot about sliding doors moments. Have you seen the movie?
1: I have, yes. Oh, yes.
0: Do you think there is at the point that maybe when you left GSK, was there ever anything else? What other direction um, could you have gone, do you think?
1: Yeah, this, is, this has been really interesting because it's made me think things through some of the stuff that happened. At one point, I was offered a job, in this is going back to when I was in market research and stuff, where there was a vacancy in the team in Paris, and it was quite an important role, as in the biggest part of the whole portfolio. And I did actually turn it down. Because I knew that I wouldn't find it interesting enough. I knew that I really enjoyed the variety of having a whole range of things to look after, which was what I was covering at the time in the role that I had. And I knew I wouldn't find that interesting enough, just having only a couple of things to look after. But it was a job in Paris. God, yeah. And when, yes, at the time of leaving GSK, I'd, there was a job that I would have loved. And actually, I stepped back from the interviews for it because So I'm not saying, oh, I'd have definitely got it, at all. but I was on the interview list and I did step back from it and chose to take the redundancy because I really, it felt like a time where I needed to stand up and, yeah, put my money where my mouth was, so to speak. So you knew you had to go it alone at that point. Yeah, I knew that was something that was quite important to me personally, to go it alone. Because I suppose the previous few years, I had been on a, a bit of a journey with myself in terms of confidence and in terms of, yeah, this whole same path. Learning learning what my actual value was and how to communicate it and what I was good at and less good at and those kinds of things. So it felt like an important thing to do at the time. So do you advise
0: organisations now as well, Paula, or do you just work one-to-one
1: with women? At the moment, I work one-to-one with women and yeah, I would love to get into more conversation with advising organisations and I'm putting together some group coaching programmes as well because there's something about the accountability of being in a group with others that can be really motivating for people, and it can also, the benefits for the companies as well, in terms of people networking and getting a broader understanding of the company and its roles and that kind of thing. So I'm putting something together on yeah. that, but at the moment, yeah, I work with one-to-one clients.
0: I guess from your experience that you have with all of these women, you have quite a unique take on on
1: how different situations could be approached, I suppose. Well, yeah, I guess so. We all, we've all experienced really good managers. At least I hope we have at some point in our career. At least once at some point, yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. And we've all experienced probably at some point managers who didn't really care. And let's Mm -hmm. hope that was only once as well. But in between, there's a whole bunch of managers and leaders who do care, but they're kind of maybe missing the mark. In terms of only looking at the world through their perspective, through their own lens and their range of experiences. And not seeing that different people come with a whole different set of experiences and maybe need things, a different approach for them to succeed. As a woman, having been very effectively trained to wait to be noticed. And everything Mm -hmm. in society is improving somewhat. Everything has trained us to wait to be noticed. But that's not how the workplace goes. That's not how it operates. So what managers can do and what leaders can be doing is in their one-to-ones and in their conversation, just ask your direct reports or ask the people that you, that work for you, what challenges have you faced this week what that you've overcome? Or yeah. something that can be quite powerful is, so what would have gone wrong if you hadn't been here this week? And that makes someone stop and think yeah. in terms of, Oh, that's the example of someone was left off a distributionist. Oh, if I hadn't noticed that, then what would have happened was? And you go, oh, that's what you're contributing. And to start to think of it in that way, what would have gone wrong if you hadn't been around? Because essentially your job, to, to a great extent, in the office, in pharma, is stopping things going wrong and keeping things on the right track. And if you start to think about what you're doing in those terms, And you you start to then value what it is that you're contributing. But it's a manager's job as well to help their staff to recognize these things and to actually prompt them into thinking about them.
0: So what are some of the practices that you go through then? What are some practical tips that you can give people
1: in terms of Mm -hmm. actions and top tips? It's start. Imagine you'd applied for a job. And you read the job description and you're preparing for interview. And I don't know if you prepare for interview the same way that I always have. So you go through the job description and every single line on there, you think of two or three examples that you've got of stuff that you've done. Mm-hmm. And then you write them out and you write them out and you write them out in kind of the achievement format of what was the situation? Where did we need to get to? What action did I take? And what was the result ideally with quantified in some way? When you do, that's really motivating because you think, wow, I've achieved up." Great, I've done loads. Yeah. And yet we don't do it the rest of the time. No, just it's so true. Pick at your own job description and imagine if you were trying to impress someone with what you've done in your job description. Or just pick up any job description, whether you're going to apply for it or not, and, and go through that process. And challenge yourself in, your one, in one-to-ones with managers, with more senior people to say, to come up with achievement statements along those sorts of lines. So this was the situation, this was what got in the way, this is what I did and this is the outcome. And practice saying those, practice saying them to your friends if you can't quite bring yourself Mm. to say it to someone more senior, just to get used to these statements of fact of this is what I have done, this is what I have achieved and this is the impact it had. Where do you think women
0: are now in general with the work-life balance? What's your perspective in terms
1: of, the remote working and how women are coping post-Covid. Remote working seems to have set this expectation of being available all the time. So things seem to be back to back, much more than they ever were Mm. in an office. So everything is back to back, pinging instant messages all the time. And it's just incessant. And so the days in the office where people then block out their diary to an extent, are actually fewer meetings and getting more work done. But has it gone back too far? No. I don't think it has. But I think there's a legacy of expecting people just to be available whenever. And we need to get back to establishing boundaries around our time and shutting down computer at the end of the day, putting it away.
0: I guess a lot of that is down to us as individuals, really. There's only so much organisations can do. I think we have to set our own boundaries
1: and communicate those. Having your work life and your personal life all in one place does blur the lines, doesn't it? Yeah. So even though a lot of people aren't necessarily working at home all the time anymore, those lines have now been blurred and it's quite difficult to redefine them, isn't it? And same with phones. Yeah, resisting looking at work emails. When personal notifications are coming up as well, makes you notice the work email. I know it is. It's all just so addictive. It's horrendous.
0: So where? So what do you think is next for you then, Paula? Do you set yourself regular goals
1: that you revisit? What's on your agenda next? What's on my agenda next is yes, bringing in some group coaching, which I'm really quite excited about and looking forward to. And there is a book in there somewhere. See me saying it out loud. It now has to happen. Yes, and I definitely would like to pull that together and put that out there. And yeah, I just yes, those are the two. Those are the two next things I think to focus on. Yeah. How do you define success? Oh, this was this is so hard. I know. (laughs) It's so hard. How do how do I define success for me? And I think, yeah, referring back to it, it's about seeing the line between what I do and a positive outcome. So being able to actually feel like, yeah, I did that. And that's with family as well. So success is, I measure that in terms of family as well. And in terms of making sure that I give my daughter the attention, the focus, the support that she needs as well as work. And so you can't really have one without the other. But it is, yeah, it's about seeing the line between what you do and a positive outcome and solving a problem. And If you're talking about addictive things, then those sudokus. <laughs> oh, there's <kinds> of <laughs> solving a problem. It's addicted. Wordle. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Every day, yeah. Love a Wordle. How old's your daughter? She's 10. Yeah, she's 10.
0: Oh, so is ten. mine. <laughs> yeah. I quite regularly try and instill messages into my daughter she pays no attention to me but do you have key things that you try and instill in her learnings for future preparing her for a
1: future oh yeah we do talk about a lot about we definitely praise is focused on the effort more than the outcome yeah and articulating out loud I noticed that you worked really hard at this and you stopped and considered that and then so that she knows Yeah, we notice these things. And we also talk about what is she proud of to get her used to talking about things she's proud of because that's really important. Yeah. And do you feel you did a good job? Excellent. That's it. We are very much focused on what did you get right. So (laughs) on that note, while we're talking about advice to younger people,
0: you've touched on with me that there are a few things that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier. What if you had to go back and speak to yourself when you were, say, 13, 14, what advice would you go back and give yourself?
1: Ooh. Ooh. 13 and 14, be brave. And when you do new things, There will be anxiety in that, but that's all right because it passes. And I think that would have been an incredibly valuable lesson to have learned at a very young age. I think in the workplace, starting us in the workplace, it would have been very much about, yeah, the secret to success is about influence and visibility. Influence and visibility. Get involved in stuff and be really open to trying new things. My career was quite accidental, so I didn't plan a path. And I don't yeah. know if I'd planned a path, whether it would have been any different, but I think there is value in planning ahead a bit and finding out about what the next job is that you want to do, because if your path can change, that's okay. But look a couple of jobs ahead. What job do you like the look of? What would you need to do to get there? And is that appealing? So yeah, d- put in place a plan you don't have to say it out loud to anyone or anything else but at least it's making you look ahead and making you think what would it take to do that and do I actually want what it would take so I would never want to be the CEO of some massive corporation because I know that's not a life I want but there are plenty of other roles that could have been quite fun and could have been quite exciting yeah I'll have to let you go won't I <laughs> I really enjoyed this, Paula.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure to hear a your story, but also the advice that you have for people because there's been some really valuable stuff there. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Oh no, thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed this. The great. thank you well that is it for another episode
0: thank you so much for listening if you haven't done so yet and you're enjoying the podcast please do subscribe or hit follow it makes a huge difference you can now also join this girl cam as a member where you'll get invited to join recording sessions regular mentions on the show and discounted or even free tickets to our live events to find out more head to patreon.com forward slash this girl cam as always, go to thisgirlcam.com to see this interview in print and to find out who my guest is next week. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook all under This Girl Cam. Thanks again, everyone. Bye for now.